1: Oh, what's it say? It's a trip. It does? Yeah. I have an unpublished phone, The idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves.
0: We had no sexual relationship with this young lady. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate.
2: Hello and welcome to Still Watching, the podcast from Vanity Fair that this season is following the FX series American Crime Story Impeachment. I am Katie Rich.
1: And I'm Richard Lawson.
2: And we are here to discuss the ninth episode, uh, rounding the bend at the end of American Crime Story Impeachment, which is titled The Grand Jury. And as you might guess, it's about the grand jury, and specifically the one where both Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp testified in the summer of 1998. Um, Richard, seeing the title of this episode, I was I was a little dreading it, honestly, because last week was like very like within the Clintons and about like political maneuvering. And I was like, oh, Lord, like I do not want to see like a dry courtroom story. But I found this surprisingly riveting and even more so having done my research. Did you have an overall take on this?
1: Yeah, no, it was. I mean, what I was concerned about was that we have spent you know eight previous hours with this show and so we're pretty familiar with like what monica did what she told linda what you know like it all felt very like i was worried that it was gonna feel like a rehash kind of like Mm -hmm. a previously on sort of thing but what the writers did over the course of the series is hold back some things i'm thinking of the wrenching scene where monica goes into particular detail uh about what she and clinton did together um but also kind of stuff about like linda's motivations and i think that um Yeah, there was enough kind of revelation in this episode that it felt fresh rather than a rehash.
2: Yeah. And we'll get more into kind of what we know about the public record from this. But if you look at the transcripts from Monica's uh, grand jury testimony, it's a lot of like, when did you go to the White House? What did you say to Betty Curry? What gifts did you give the president? Like all the stuff that we know very, very well. And then the people behind the show very smartly focus on stuff that feels um, a lot more emotionally intense. And it's remarkably real. And we'll get to that. Um, But first, we did want to read some of your emails. You can always email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. You can email us right now about impeachment and succession. And we're very glad to see the combination of both in our inbox Um, And I wanted to read just a couple of them. There was uh, one from Lauren, who was writing about last week, episode eight, uh, saying it felt like there was a lot of buildup to get to the actual moment of the revelation, which I assume is the moment where Bill reveals to Hillary that the affair was really happening. And she said, I think the show could have really benefited from being fewer episodes and cutting out some of the preamble. I think the show is so much about Monica and Linda that I'm kind of grateful for all the preamble. But what do you think about the notion that a that a tighter season might have benefited the story?
1: Yeah, I mean I I kind of agree and I don't agree at the same time, you know. I think there is really value um in in terms of like the the length and depth with which we've spent with these characters like like I think humanizes them that much more. It's not just a brisk retelling of history, it's character study. Yeah. Of multiple characters. Um so I value that, but I also do think in general I think you know there are a lot of TV series that or mini series that could be five episodes that stretch themselves out to fit a sort of network mandate or whatever. Um, and I think there there could could have been some trims here and there. I think especially in the middle, like early middle of the series where some episodes felt a little repetitive. But now that we're reaching the finish line, I think pretty much everything we've gotten has been of value.
2: Yeah. And in this episode, there's a lot of characters who we haven't seen in a while, maybe like Paula Jones. And we briefly see Lucienne and Goldberg. And you remember kind of the huge tapestry of the show. And I'm hoping that in ne- next week's finale, we get... And Coulter and Matt Drudge, and Michael Isikoff, and some of those characters coming back to kind of see how everyone turned out because the the scope of the amount of people involved in this is, I think, a huge part of the drama. Um, so I want another email that came in from Karen, who is kind of um, like looking back at this time period and a lot of feelings about Hillary Clinton and you know how much she recovered from all of this, how much sympathy she had. Um, and it was at the end of her email that I thought she said something interesting that is. I think, part of the text of the show, um, that why people were so shocked by these revelations about Clinton's affair. It was uncomfortable in a new way that may seem perfectly normal now. Yes, we were angry like Hillary for putting us in the situation. It might seem like a subtle distinction to you. Uh, and she compares us to how Nixon was taken down. But I promise there would never have been a Donald Trump an admitted womanizer if we if we as a country had not let Clinton get away with it. We've talked a lot about how this feels like preamble to a lot of what we know from the Trump era. But what do you make of the idea that Clinton getting away with this kind of paved the way for more presidential malfeasance down the road?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, something we talked a lot about during the Trump administration, and hopefully are still talking about is the sort of erosion of norms, you know, and of of certain ethical standards. Um, And, you know, the the thinking kind of even goes further back to um, Gerald Ford pardoning Nixon, Mm -hmm. Where it was like, well, if you know a pardons coming or if you know the public will forgive you, then what reason is there to actually operate with any sort of legal or ethical framework, you know, in these positions of high power? And I think certainly um, in this episode where Hillary says to Bill, they're looking for a a reason to free or no um, permission to forgive you. Um, And you can't do that, but I can. And that's when you start this process of like kind of. Normalizing this kind of thing. And I think it's really crucial that in her big testimony scene, Linda, for all of her character flaws and and kind of um, betrayals, does say that this was a massive abuse of power and she wanted to do something about that. And those words uh, alone, at least, ring very true to all the way to today.
2: Yeah. One more email I wanted to read that's uh, again back to Hillary Clinton from Jim in Texas. I think in Texas. Yes, Texas is part of his email address. Um, he says that there's a moment at the end of episode eight at the Martha's Vineyard house where Bill leaves and he leaves his coffee cup by the t- on the table by the door. And then she picks up Bill's coffee cup and you expect her to take the cup back to the kitchen. Instead, she pauses, looks at the cup and sets it back down. She decides she's not going to clean up after Bill anymore. Um, and we know from what we have in this episode that she she is. She is, you know, helping him get out of this mess. But I did like the symbolism. I did notice that when it happened and kind of wish we'd mentioned it. So just a, a little Quick, quick nod to Hillary's mental space in the form of a coffee cup, which is smart writing, I think. I'm Claire Fallon. Okay, so into episode nine, as I mentioned, we have a lot of characters in this story. I have broken it down, uh, storylines by character. I think they pretty neatly divide themselves. And I figured we'd start with Paula Jones, uh, our, I I think, honestly, beloved Paula Jones. And she might be more sympathetic in this episode than she's been at any point before. Um, And we see her again uh, about to get a nose job with um, Susan Carpenter McMillan sitting right next to her in the hospital. And her husband is not there because he got fired from the airline. He says it's because of the Clintons. She said it's because he wouldn't work the hours that they asked for. Um, aren't Aren't you glad to see the return of kind of funny uh, Paula, even under these bad circumstances?
1: Yeah. I mean, funny in a sort of tragic sense. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I, I think. Having this moment with her, you know, having in, in kind of gory detail, the doctor describe what's going to happen in this process, Ugh. which is a very Ugh. commonplace practice, you know, you know proce- uh, procedure. Um, and yet, like when you actually get into it, it's like when people describe LASIK eye surgery and you're like, oh, good God, I don't want to <laughs> hear about flipping up. I, I don't want to hear anything about that. Um, but I think what's so tragic about it is that, like, at least in the scope of this show and in terms of where. um. The, the show's lens is focused where we you know who is is you know is standing at center stage it, you know in, in the experience of watching nine hours of this now it's like oh paula is but doesn't she know that this she's done like
0: that yeah. this is over
1: why is she getting a nose job now you know mm-hmm. to, to for, for, for 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 i guess for future public appearances that probably aren't going to be very many you know uh, and yeah. that's kind of later confirmed um at least some some of it being over you know, with this call with about the um the judge dismissing the case and um yeah, so it's just kind of like right, she has to kind of now embark upon the rest of her life with this new sort of mind toward public notoriety, um even though that would. You know, pretty swiftly fade at least in my memory from after the Lewinsky kind of thing blew through.
2: Yeah, and you know, so later on we see her again, and the only other time in the episode when her husband comes home and she's got this you know bandaged up face and bruised eyes and everything, and she effectively tells him like I only started this lawsuit because of you. She didn't take the Clinton settlement. She didn't know she had a bad nose before she got up in the public eye. And It's really heartbreaking that that is the effect that the spotlight has had on her to make her look at her face and her herself in this terrible, like, cold light of the media that you would, you know, you don't want anyone to have to ever see themselves that way.
1: Yeah, and in terms of the imagery of Paula, you know, black eyes, bandaged nose, arguing with her volatile, mean husband, there is this kind of, I don't know, sort of representational sort of evocation of, like, an abused wife or abused you know spouse in, in in a relationship you know he doesn't hit her in these scenes mm-hmm. but in in a kind of grandly pretentiously metaphorical sense you could be like well she is battered but she's been battered by the public you know and here is this one totem of that who's pushed her into this and 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 you know kind of told her to t- turn down this money because they wanted more they wanted you know and 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 in in her kind of fragile and bruised literally state she does muster up some um, you know, took the courage to be like, to kind of have the veil lifted and be like, oh my God, like you'd never believe me. Like this is, you, this, you know, and then she essentially like, I guess splits up with him or at least for a moment. And um, I thought that was, that was pretty powerful and, and a reminder of uh, how good Analeigh Ashford can be, not just with the funny stuff, but with heavy lifting too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I kind of, I, I don't know if this is the last we'll see of Paula on the show, but it did, you know, the moment of her standing up for herself a little bit and, you know, recognizing what we have seen all along, I think, which is that she was being strung along. I guess you want her to have that scene with su- Susan as well, being like, "I did this for you, and this is what you've left me with." Because, you know, like I sh- she gets off the phone, she says the su- the judge issued a summary judgment, and that they basically get nothing, and they can't go back and get that settlement that the Clintons offered them. Like that's over, which is heartbreaking. Yeah,
1: and what this show has done well with with Paula Jones, um, with Monica, with with Linda Tripp, and I guess to some extent in this episode, one night Broderick. Is the reminder that like these names may have faded from the news cycle, um, been you know, come sort of like uh, jokey arcana, and then nothing at all until you know maybe like Lewinsky came forward on her own years later to kind of reinvent herself in a sense. Um, But like they had to go to sleep and wake up and go to sleep and wake up, and like their lives kept going. And I think even if it's just one or two scenes with Paula Jones, it's 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 an important reminder that like. She the, the the spotlight might have shifted away from her, but like she was still a person dealing with, you know, a bad relationship and her own fears about who she was and who she was going to be.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through the timeline of this case. So this so she got the, the case was dismissed in April of 1998, which is after the Lewinsky scandal has broken before these grand jury testimonies that we're seeing um, in November of that year. He actually did wind up settling because she had appealed. Um, basically, you know, for her to get to drop the appeal, he agreed to settle. And then in uh, early 1999, it was ruled that she would only get $200,000 from the settlement. Um, so her saying that she gets nothing in this is not entirely what happened. But, you know, would you take $200,000 for what she went through? I don't think I would. Right.
1: Yeah. Especially because, like, who knows what fees were incurred. I know that other people were paying for a lot of this, but maybe not everything.
2: Yeah. A donor paid for the nose job, which is um, bad to think about. Um, so there's another brief appearance from another Clinton accuser in this episode, which is Juanita Broderick, who we've seen previously with uh, Miranda Lambert's parents at her door. Don't forget that. Um, basically saying she wants nothing to do with any of this and denying that he had ever um, that Clinton had raped her, which is the the rumor that had been going around for a long time. Um, two uh, FBI guys working for the star team show at her door, basically asking if she is telling the truth in that affidavit that she signed. And then the episode ends with uh, them wrapping up the Star report and a guy comes in saying she recanted and she's now saying that he did rape her. Uh, and Starr basically says it's not relevant to what we're doing. Like, this is not about um, not about uh, political pressure or obstruction of justice. So it can be a footnote. And Juanita Roderick's story was, in fact, a footnote in the Star report. That is how it went public for the first time. Um, I kind of I mean, I don't want to say Ken Starr was right because it's a convoluted case, but. The idea of the Star Wars investigation expanding so much at that point was already pretty intensive that it does seem like it wasn't relevant to it. But it is kind of a somber ending to this episode that, like, there's still more women, there's still more terrible stories and that the, the justice system is not necessarily doing right by them.
1: And, and in, in a case of truth being stranger, more perverse, whatever, than fiction, you know, you could watch this episode and be like, well, that's a little on the nose. She's just going to become a footnote in history. Except that she literally was, she literally was a footnote yeah. in at least this one document. Um, and I think, obviously, that speaks volumes to the ways that um, sexual assault uh, accusations, charges, whatever, are, are sort of compartmentalized or handled or thrown away or whatever. Um, is this whole lived experience, this intensely awful thing that Winita Broderick um, you know, alleged to have happened— um, just gets put in a folder with her name written on it and just kind of tossed into a sort of pile of yeah. otherwise, you know, quote unquote, useless information. And that's, um, I think, certainly has a resonance beyond this particular case.
2: Yes. Yeah. I think that's a good way of um, another way that the show is kind of speaking to the present and to the future of when that show is happening. Okay, so let's go back to the Clintons, who were the center of everything last week, but are much more um, minor players in this week's episode. uh, It starts with them at like a Russian accordion performance is my best guess of what's going on. And uh, they're like clapping along in this stuffy room at the White House. And Hillary's face just looks like completely dead. I, I, I don't they didn't do a lot with the like awful tedium of working in the White House on this show. But this feels like a very good picture into like the hell that hillary is in for much of her time as a first lady and
1: yeah it's just it's kind of smaller room it's a little rinky-dink stage like yeah um so i the the russian accordion players they were um when when they when the cold war ended that was part of the deal was that they would that the u.s mm-hmm. government would get a troop yeah. of russian accordion players um mostly for white house use but other things yeah too.
2: and the, the president would have to sit through them every year as a, a part of the ceasefire as
1: a reminder kind of hunger game style a reminder <laughs> of what came before and yeah.
2: uh, yeah. So Hillary gets up and introduces him and kind of pointedly doesn't greet him. And then they go back in the White House. He is looking at a list of the Democrats who might vote yes on impeachment, which is kind of a funny thing to think about now, given that we had an impeachment this year. An impeachment this year, Richard. Um, that was so so along party lines anyway. Um, And then Bill gives basically this big speech about how she's the pers- only opinion he cares about. He pities people who find their wives dull like, like he couldn't talk to his best friend who he meets Hillary about how hard his job was. Um, And her face is just this like glass wall the whole time. Like she's not giving anything away. Um, But again, I've been the the big Clive Owen defender this whole season. And I think he sells this really well. You feel kind of bad for Bill here. At least I do. How do you feel? You
1: do. You also hear, you know, I was thinking about it watching that performance and it's an interesting shot. His sort of face is kind of to the left of the screen. I mean, you know, he's not centered. Um, and uh, it's just a kind of a, a long close-up, basically. Um, and and you see in there his pride still, uh, mm-hmm. the pride that is like I can get, I can talk my way out of this, I can like orate my way out of, you know, this kind of bad situation. And though there is genuine sincerity in there as well, um, I think the thing he says about uh, other men. Who like what? What he says something like they they find
2: their wives they, so they dull. They tense up at dinner
1: parties when their wives yeah. start speaking. Yeah. And he's saying that as kind of like a but that's not you. But he, but in that implication is kind of saying that most other women are and mm-hmm. and maybe he's just saying no men just other men don't see the value in their wives. But I think he is making a distinction that Hillary's not like the rest of the girls. You know, yeah, which still yeah. says something about the kind of objectified way that Bill Clinton, at least in this show's version of things maybe saw women you know yeah um and but hillary was just like this kind of special rarity rather than you know bill isn't saying i wish all husbands would see what i see in you in their wives because they have that potential in them or they are those people but you know i don't know so so i feel bad for him but he's also kind of like revealing some failures in I don't know, character or something.
2: Yeah. Well, what you just said reminded me of, I think, the implication of how he treated Monica too. Where like with Monica, it was real. They could talk about things and she was a rich girl from Beverly Hills, not like Paula Jones or Juanita Broderick, you know. Like the the way that there's this implied distinction between women on class levels, uh, is part of that too. Uh, I do like that it ends with her just saying, Is that all? And <laughs> leaving. Uh I I think that they have lingered on Hillary's anger. In a way that feels appropriate because it's not really part of the public record. You know, they've said that she was angry for a long time. They haven't discussed it in too much detail. But I, I feel like she deserves a little bit more rage before, as we see later in the episode, she kind of steps back by his side.
1: Yeah, she steps back. And yet it's out of I mean, who knows? Maybe the show is implying that the speech worked something on her or she set the marital betrayal aside and um, is now kind of going back into like political calculation mode. and you know it's like okay i can get you out of this here is some i know i wield a lot of power and here's a big chip that i have
2: yeah yeah so she comes back in the the oval office later and he's in this real moment of self-pity talking about andrew johnson and she and she says i hate it when you're like this which again I, i don't want to like reveal too much about personal relationships on this show but like having been married for a while there's definitely moments where like my husband will be self pitying. it's like no come on man like get yourself together and i feel like every every relationship needs if you're in a relationship, everyone has to play that part at some point. You have to be the one to pull the other one up out of their funk. And, and Hillary takes that role in this scene. And
1: yeah. it makes
2: sense for what we know of her.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, you know, their work was not the, the scope of what they hoped to do was not limited to, you know, in 2000, we have to leave the White House and then it's done. No, there yeah. were many, many, many more years of plans. And so they had to write the ship, get on the, the correct course again. And she's very right. That that was the probably one of the only ways that that could have been accomplished was, um, you know, the poll numbers were going up, but someone still needed to, as she says, give them permission to forgive him.
2: Yeah. And I'm curious what we're going to see that look like on the show. I don't really know. I don't remember what she did to to further shore him up after this. But hopefully that's the that's how we'll end Hillary's story next
1: week. She had the Russian accordionist deported as a gift to him. (laughs)
2: I mean, what more could you ask for from a loving spouse? Um, OK, so that's that's what else is going on in the episode. Now we can really go in on the grand jury. Um, so what happened in real life is that Monica testified twice before the grand jury on August 6th and August 20th. Those transcripts are all available online uh, at The New York Times or The Washington Post. You can Google them and read them very easily. Linda testified, I think, just on June 30th and July 2nd. uh, And then after July 2nd is when she made that big uh, courthouse speech that's, uh, you know, if you Google Linda, that's one of the things that you'll see. She's flanked by her children. Um, Her testimony is a little bit harder to find. I found kind of a weirdly scanned PDF of it. Um, If anyone can find a better version of it, I assume it's public record. I just couldn't find it as quickly. Um, And part of it, I think, is that. You know, Linda testifies, Monica starts cooperating after that. And so once Monica starts cooperating, Linda's version of the story is not as important because, you know, Linda comes up and she's like, I heard this happen and this and this and this. And then Monica comes and says she was actually there. So she's the one who, you know, when she goes into the courtroom, she's big news. But we open with Linda and we open with Linda in line a really unappealing looking continental breakfast. And I love a continental breakfast. I love a Belgian waffle iron, but uh, nothing that anyone at that hotel where Linda is hiding out from the press uh, looked appealing and everyone recognizes her. And yet she goes back to the buffet every day. And at this point, I feel like we can say, that's just, that's just so Linda. It totally makes sense. She would do everything we see in that cold open.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I look, I, there, there could be a criticism of this show That this sort of parade of the banal indignities suffered by Linda Tripp, you know, uh, from thwarted Christmas parties to waffle irons to, you know, to frozen meals to whatever, like, but I I do think that, again, it's important to get the sort of quotidian view of these people, you know, she did Mm -hmm. have to while away these many days, or at least she thought so in sort of self-imposed exile, frustrated with the sort of indignities of the world while she had at one point and maybe still just a little bit had fancied herself sort of like in the kind of the the flow of of like power and, and information and, and and now she's just kind of like waiting it out at a hampton inn or whatever you know and yeah um yeah so it, it might be piling on a little bit but it also does serve a purpose
2: yeah and i was thinking about how we keep talking about Linda as such a fully realized character. And I think you know that she's a fully realized character because you think, okay, Linda Tripp in a, in a continental breakfast line, what would she do? And I'm like, I know exactly what Linda would do. And that's exactly what she does do. You can just, she, Sarah Paulson has played her to such an extent that I feel like I understand her as a full human being. Um, and she would absolutely tell someone how to use waffle iron. And that person was doing a bad job of using the waffle iron. Linda was right. She's right sometimes.
1: Um, so I have a, a conspiracy theory that I want to mm. test out on you mm-hmm. in February of 1999 NBC aired the famous pivot pivot episode of friends is it possible <laughs> a friend's writer was in that hotel in 1998 and heard Linda say rotate <laughs> rotate
2: and stole it I mean we've seen how Linda played major roles in history it wouldn't surprise yep. me uh, it was all happening right there um, so Allison, Linda's daughter, who continues to just be the hero that Linda needs, shows up basically being like, stop staying here. Stop reading press reports about you. There's some lady named Jane calling, leaving messages. We'll talk about her later. Um, and trying to get her out of her funk. And uh, Linda, again, like you were saying, like she's maybe in a self-imposed exile in the Hampton and The press is not necessarily there anymore. Um but she can't quite hear Allison, and I like the way that Allison's frustration is played there. But also, again, like Linda is predictable, and we know how she's going to react to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is part of her walking with the cross on her back. You know, she th- this is mm-hmm. self punishment. This is, but also to kind of embolden the narrative that she's crafting about her persecution. Like it, it's 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 incumbent on on her sort of vision of herself in the world. That she not just be living at home like normal, you know, she has yeah. to be sequestered and and beset at all at all sides by you know yeah. reporters and prosecutors mm-hmm. and all that.
2: Yeah. Um. So then Linda, we, we catch up with her later in the episode. She finally goes home, and in the mail is a copy of the New Yorker. And Richard, did you notice the cover of this New Yorker? A
1: famous Titanic Oscars cover because it was March twenty third, nineteen
2: ninety eight. Really. I remember that cover, and of course, I was not reading the New Yorker uh, when I was fourteen in nineteen ninety eight. But did I ever pay attention to the Titanic Oscar run? And um, that brought me great joy to see that pop up. And my
1: parents did read the New Yorker, and I, uh, I, I maybe I'm, I'm, it's a false memory, but I do think I remember seeing that issue like on a coffee table in my house.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, this was the period where I started reading Entertainment Weekly because every week Titanic was on the cover, yeah. basically <laughs> because because thirteen year olds like me were sorry I, I misstated my age. I was not yet fourteen. Anyway, uh, I was the target audience. I think there was
1: one Man in the Iron Mask cover in the midst of that. (laughs)
2: Probably. We did our best. Um, So also in this New Yorker issue, uh, maybe they wrote about Titanic, I don't know, is the the Jane Mayer story, Portrait of a Whistleblower, which is about Linda. And Richard, you read this and I didn't. So I want you to tell me about it.
1: It's an interesting story. I mean, it begins with this kind of a little bit editorializing about like, it's basically kind of saying like, what would make this crazy lady do this like? sinister thing you know um but then it kind of does go into like her past in this way that basically the 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 mayor article frames part of Tripp's conviction about like doing all this uh as anger at her philandering father anger Mm -hmm. at her divorce and a general sort of uh, the word one of the terms used in the article is busybody that according to the sources that Mayer spoke to, um, most of which are, uh, you know, uh, on, off the record, or I mean, at least like anonymous, rather, um, is that she was obsessed with marital infidelity among coworkers and other people for years at other at like hmm. previous jobs and was sort of known to be a gossip, had been in touch with her journalists, but well, was suspected of leaking to journalists well before Lewinsky happened, um, which is an interesting kind of thing that we haven't really gotten a ton of on this show. Yeah, Um, but the slant of the article is such that, like, I don't really know how seriously to take all of it, I guess. But um, it is definitely an interesting document. It's on the New Yorker archives, um, you know, sort of a supplemental thing to read um, while watching or after watching this show. Um, There weren't any huge details that jumped out at me. um, But it yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a document of how people were speaking about this whole thing. Um, then necessarily, it is um, an insightful look at like Linda Tripp herself. Although there is one detail that jumped out at me, just because there, it's a name that has kind of large once loomed large in my head. Um, I didn't know that in addition to Lucy Goldberg, someone else Linda Tripp extensively spoke to about doing some kind of book um, about the with a chapter called "The President's Women" was Maggie Gallagher. Do you remember that name? No. Maggie Gallagher was a one one of the figureheads of the anti-gay marriage movement um, right before when all that stuff was still, you know, before they they struck down Doma um, and just became this really vociferous um, I don't hate gay people, I just, here's why I think it'll cause marriages to fail, like straight marriages. Uh And at the time a lot of people, probably myself included uh, sourced all of that to her own failed marriage. And it's mm. and, and there was a lot of there was, if I remember correctly, some sort of circumstantial evidence to support that um, theory. Uh, and it's just interesting that she uh, was speaking with Linda Tripp, who in this Jane Mayer article is made to be also very d- bitter about divorce and her father's, uh, you know, leaving her family. And, and so it's just it's just interesting that like Maggie Gallagher, though not pictured on the show, um, was, I guess, involved in some way in a kind of predictable fashion, at least if this article is to be trusted.
2: Well, and that's an interesting way to kind of read the room of where things were at this point that you kind of see in the grand jury testimonies later, too, where everyone's like, you know, we've all sinned. Like, why? Why are we making such a big deal out of this? And this is how Clinton kind of escaped unscathed from this, is that when you see the people pushing this forward as having this agenda about divorce or having some kind of, you know, axe to grind and everyone else is like, well, people get divorced and people fail. Um, the The like the defense, you don't have to defend Bill Clinton to believe that maybe having an affair is not the. Be all end all worst crime a person can commit,
1: well, yeah, and I think that I think we talked about this maybe last week, is that like that for whatever we think of Ken Starr and the ultimate motivations of all of this, you know it they were maybe not intentionally, but they were in, in essence investigating abuse of power, like Linda Tripp talks about you know mm-hmm. actual things that like do are are like maybe not criminal but like bad and have really harmful consequences. But they kind of ignored that and it ended up being about like this cabal of people trying to litigate sexual relationships in and outside of marriages, you know, and Mm -hmm. which, of course, even in the, you know, relatively stone age, late 90s, people were like, no, we're not doing that. You know, Uh, we disagree with that. Whereas now, I think hopefully because of lots of changes in thought about these kind of things, um, not that we should I'm not saying anyone thinks we should prosecute, you know, uh people who cheat on their spouses, but like, um, they would it would probably be reframed more about the abuse of power, more about that kind of thing than it was, oh, you know, Clinton's gonna Clinton. Like, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't be scolding him for uh, you know, doing what comes naturally or whatever. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, this might be a good spot to pause and listen to the interview that you did with Sarah Paulson. Um And you spoke before we had seen this episode, so you didn't get into too much detail about episode nine. But she did talk about the grand jury testimony and what we're going to talk about later about how when Linda goes before the grand jury, they kind of uh, don't want anything to do with it. Um, So anything you want to say before we listen to that? No,
1: just that she was a joy to talk to. And I think that um, she offered some really interesting insight about not only the process of doing the show, but kind of how it lingered with her after the fact. Yeah. Well, I have a kind of almost, I think, podcast season capping uh, person on the line to speak with for this episode, uh, the great Sarah Paulson, who plays Linda Tripp on impeachment. Sarah, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So, we you know on this podcast, we've been covering week by week all the minutiae, and it would not have felt like a full analysis of this show, of this story. Uh, if we didn't get a chance to talk to you, because you and, uh, and Linda are really, as as I see it anyway, at the center of things. Do you see it that way? Is this a story about Linda Tripp?
0: Um, I see it that way in so much as I spent the last two years living inside her mind or what I determined to be her mind. Um, and what the scripts led me to believe uh, was her mind. Um so for me, of course, like any sort of uh, narcissistic performer or human being, yeah, it's it's all about me. So, so um, but but I do, you know, all joking aside, I do sort of believe that the way into this story that that made it a kind of uh, unique angle or lens through which to see this this particular time in our country's history was through the the eyes of the women in this story. And, And Linda, uh, certainly, I mean, she did publish a book, a book was published posthumously, uh, but she was sort of the only person of the three women who did not, uh, write a book or, or give, um, full, uh, communicative breadth to her experience. So, so yeah, I think in a way it was sort of, we knew the least about Linda, but the most, uh, The character probably um, or not the character, but the the real woman herself probably uh is the most uh predetermined. Um opinions have been so sort of solidified and calcified around who Linda was. So so that there's that piece of it too, trying to crack that that shell.
1: What what duty do you feel to that history? Like in terms of like, do you view this show, this performance? as necessarily correcting any historical record?
0: Mm, no, I I don't. I only see it as an opportunity to try to understand more. Uh, and I, I don't even know if by the end of it, anyone will feel that way, uh, a, a sense of, of real understanding as to the why she did something. So on the face of it, really, really un, unimaginable and unthinkable. Uh, but I, I, I did not approach this with a, um, with the idea of sort of correcting or writing some uh, predetermined wrong. Uh, I do think what Linda did was was kind of an unconscious, certainly on the face of it, a kind of um, impossible to wrap your brain around uh, decision, uh, and action. So, so I certainly wasn't wasn't thinking about trying to get people on Team Linda, as it were.
1: Right. Yeah. right it's it's about humanization, you know, which I think probably most figures public figures deserve maybe not maybe not quite all, but most uh, <laughs> and know. and certainly uh, Linda Tripp is among those. um you know, you said you've been kind of in her mind for the past couple years. I- I'm curious what that landscape looks like at least in terms of how you chose to play the role specifically i i'm you know there's there's a lot of dialogue, especially toward the end of the series when you know, the news is breaking and Linda's telling her children, like, some people are going to come for me, but some people are going to celebrate me as a hero, even. How much do you believe that, or at least in terms of your choices, how to play the role? How much does Linda believe that, that she's doing something nobly good for her country? Or or was it complicated by other more personal things?
0: I think like anything, it, it's a sort of fragmented um, puzzle. It, it's not, there is no... Um, easy answer to that question. I certainly think um, Linda believed she was doing something not only for the good of the country but something that would benefit Monica Lewinsky in the long run. But I cannot be sure, and i I wonder about the veracity of that as a singular uh, reason I, I don't I don't think that's possible. What I determined is I imagine. When you commit to doing something that you yourself question and you yourself wrestle with in order to do it and in order to see it through, you might have to commit to some piece of your belief around the matter. But in order to, you know, almost kind of having to double down on the belief that she was doing it for the good of the country and to get, you know, who she believed to be a, a sort of um. Unscrupulous character out of the out of the White House, an institution that she revered and you know had so much um, respect and admiration for and had felt so proud to be part of, and obviously felt quite sort of forsaken and and left behind uh, in that arena. And I think those things have to be at play, too. it wasn't It wasn't just a kind of altruistic um, uh, motivator. I, I don't think. but I do think it was a big piece of it. And I do think, as the story goes on and as she gets deeper and deeper into, um, you know, under it, I do think she had to cling more and more to this idea that there was purity to what she was doing. But I almost would think about it like Linda got on a train and she didn't realize how fast the train was going to leave the station. And then she was on it. And it was like what she, even though, you know, she probably was the conductor. She was the, you know, she was driving it, but then had to kind of along the way when it, when it got so out of control um, I think she just had to really, really cling to this idea that she was doing something pu- purely, but I, I don't think that could possibly be the full, the full story.
1: Yeah. Because at a certain point you're like, well, if I didn't do it for these reasons, then what the hell am I doing? Exactly. You know? And exactly. that's too scary a concept for most people to confront. I would I think.
0: Would, I would think so too. And, you know, in yeah. the, later on in the slow burn podcast, um, you hear her in that, you know, what you. What I was most struck by was what you don't hear. You don't hear tremendous regret about the choice. What I heard was regret about the outcome in terms of how it impacted Monica. I can hear a catch in her voice when she talks about Monica. And I I, I have to imagine that that was the thing she regretted. But she sort of clung, even all those years later, to, to the motivating factor being uh, for the good of the country and for Monica's uh, good, ultimately.
1: Yeah, I mean, something that's so heartbreaking about how this series is shaped is that you really do spend a lot of time with this friendship, you know, and then all of a sudden in the meeting uh, at the restaurant where Linda's recording her, um, she's she's wired, uh, you hear the FBI talking about Monica and Linda and it's, you know, asset and subject and it gets so reduced to these kind of, you know, chess pieces, essentially. Mm-hmm. Do you think even through that, like, do you think that Linda, again, in, in your sort of car- portrayal of her... Um, does she view Monica as her friend this whole time? Or is there a certain point where she has to turn off the friend thing?
0: I think at a certain point she had to turn it off. And I think she had to convince herself that it was never that deep to begin with, which I don't believe she really believed was true. Um, I think Linda was lonely. And I think uh, I ended up talking to someone who actually worked with her in the Pentagon, who was a young, young man at the time who worshipped her, loved her, loved her, thought she was such so much fun and was really looking out for him often. I think Linda probably liked being a a parental maternal figure and, and she liked being needed. I mean, this is a person who ultimately felt post her divorce and, you know, her children sort of getting ready to flee the nest. One of them already had, you know, she was sort of a bit um, unmoored. And I think having a young woman need her and rely on her and confide in her gave some of her days a kind of meaning that, that I think um, she needed. So I, I think it was probably deeper than she convinced herself it was later in order to do what she had to do. I think Linda was a sort of fascinating uh, compartmentalist uh, of the highest order. It was, it was pretty fascinating psychologically to me.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us are <laughs> really could yeah. str- kind of horrifyingly good at compartmentalization, yeah. um, and I think from a certain angle, if you you know if you take out sort of the human collateral, this was sort of an adventure. I mean, it's not that far off from Thelma and Louise. It, it it it's like breaking out of the mundanity of life, and all of a sudden you have all these people descending on my home and my office, and I'm getting secret codes, and it it must have felt exciting.
0: Oh, and there's no doubt about that. Everybody who talks yeah. about Linda at that time talked about you know particularly Michael Isikoff in his book about the cloak and dagger nature of, of her, um, clandestine meetings and, and, and the kind of giddiness and the kind of excitement that it would, that it would stir in her. And, um, you know, that was, that was a very real part of it, but again, it all for me traces back to that feeling of wanting to matter and, um, wanting her, you know, her life and her, her world in Washington, which, you know, I don't know if you've spent any time there, but, uh, it's a really small town ultimately. And it's a real one horse town. So I can understand once we got there and started shooting some stuff there, I thought, wow, no wonder she actually felt that she somehow was really um, involved in this society, which, you know, of course, nothing could really have been further from the truth, but I can understand why she felt that way. Cause it was really, it's, it's a, it's a very small place. Ultimately.
1: Yeah. I mean, One industry towns are fascinating. Um, You could almost call, you know, Los Angeles. It it, it has one dominant industry. Let's say there is a, I won't repeat it exactly, but there is a sort of mean kind of nickname for DC as it compares to uh, LA. Um, Do you see, you know, you, you've been in this business a long time. Do do you see parallels there between the ecosystems of Washington and Hollywood? Oh yes.
0: My God. I mean, it's, I mean the difference being some sometimes the ecosystem in in Hollywood you know they have this sort of sense of self importance as a as an industry um and that the whole world kind of revolves around it whereas in Washington at least some of that is kind of, kind of applicable right. because there is um you know but but sure yeah I do actually
1: so you're playing this character who has all of these psychological weather systems kind of in her head and 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 there's you know the The circumstances are changing by the minute and and i would i would think that as an actor it would be easy to just play all that big and latent and just like right that you know on the surface kind of thing but you don't i think it's a pretty restrained performance given all of the big stuff that's happening is that something you have to be sort of intellectually conscious of as you're shooting each scene to kind of exactly calibrate or does it come or does it, or does it come naturally i guess
0: um, I think it depends on the part. With this one, I think it was a fine line. You know, I was, of course, acutely aware that I was, um, you know, wearing a prosthetic nose and a neck and a wig and teeth and the whole thing. And, of course, as an actor, you just dream about doing those kinds of transformations because although there is an enormous change externally, there's also the internal work that that goes into a portrayal um, or an attempt at a portrayal. Um, and I think with this one, because it was hard because, um, you know, she, she was a kind of larger than life person personality and, and had sort of extreme reactions to things and, and would get very angry and would get get very frustrated. And there's all this, um, all these emails that, that we had access to of, of people talking about how she would leave early for work and just sort of dismiss herself and decide she could leave and that she, you know, had this kind of ability at, at the Pentagon to just you know, make her own hours and all this stuff that of course was not within her purview to, to decide for herself, but just this kind of self-importance. And I thought, how do you play a kind of grand sense of self when really what's motivating that uh, grandiosity or that self-perceived grandiosity is a sense of being really inconsequential. And so how do I calibrate all of that and still have these sort of Extreme uh, responses, all you know, while trying to do it in a way that feels human um, and not like a caricature, not like I'm commenting on on her uh, from the vantage point of being quite quite different than she is um, as a human being, me myself. So it was something I, I had to think about all the time, and there were plenty of takes that I did um, where I would, was so big. And then there would be plenty of takes where I would almost do nothing. And somehow I, you know, would sometimes land in some middling place. And sometimes the extreme was really called for, um, her responses to things would be, would be kind of outrageous, you know, think about like the language she uses. Everything is a debacle and everything, you know, and (laughs) it's just like, you know, and it's like a sweaty snapple on her desk. is just, you know, and, and just a, insurmountable obstacle to the be metro concerned. is a disaster, yeah, you know? Every, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so extreme. And, and that's just how she feels things. And of course I could relate to that a little bit, you know, cause I, you know, have been called Sarah Bernhardt by my mother since I was a child. And although she was being sort of a, um, probably trying to be funny, there was some part of it that made me at a very young age, feel like my reactions were sort of um, uh, were out of adjustment for, for the circumstance when really it was what I felt. And so there was a, a kind of uh, internal um, fault line for me that I felt I could understand Linda uh, because I I felt I too had these kind of like quixotic um, big reactions to sometimes very very small things um, and that's just you know how I came into the world so I could relate to it and I could understand it um, and it made me have of course enormous empathy uh, for for her too you know
1: yeah. That's funny. My mom's been calling me Sandra Bernhardt for, since I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, were there any scenes in particular in any given episode that were particularly difficult to shoot from a technical level, from an emotional level? Like, um, can, does anything stand out in your, in your memory of uh, having filmed it? A,
0: a bunch of things really, but, but actually, um, in episode nine, uh, we have our, our grand jury testimony. It's really what the bulk of the episode is about is is Monica's grand jury testimony and mine and sort of the, the differences uh, in terms of the reaction of um, the people in that room and their willingness ultimately to kind of be um oh, won over by monica and their absolute disdain for linda and these actors were so incredible i mean i i we i just beanie and i kept talking about like how incredible these actors were who played members of the grand jury um because it, it did remind me a little bit of of one of the most spectacular things about making the people versus oj was we were in the room all the time with this gallery of people watching the trial and the jury and the defense and the prosecution and every we were there all day every day together and there was this collective experience of you know watching courtney b vance get through his opening argument or watching sterling do do a closing argument and the the feeling that we had from from everyone in that room and people would stand up and applaud and it was this collective kind of communal incredible um acting experience um that was so amazing and this was so like that um because it was just me or it was Beanie sitting in a, in a chair by, at a big table by ourselves. You know, we don't have any council there. We've got members of the FBI um, on one side of our, of, our, of the table and, and then just this sea of people out in front of us. Um, and it was hard because they were really, they hated Linda. And they hated me from the moment I sat down and it made my job ultimately acting it. Sort of easy because I had so much to respond to, and I could feel their their disdain and their disregard for me slash Linda, um, and it was painful, and and it made my upset. I get Linda gets so upset by the by the end of it, and then she goes out and makes this sort of sort of famous speech. Uh, this speech entitled "I Am You," which was she talks about in the Slow Burn podcast as being one of the great regrets of her life because it was so tone deaf and this utterly, uh, bananas, um, the speech that she makes, but it's very upsetting. Um, it was very upsetting and it was, it was, but it was also one of these kind of magical moments of these other actors, um, giving me so much to, to respond to, but it was one of the days I remember being sort of acutely painful to play because at that point we're in episode nine, we're sort of, sort of, um, toward of, sort of near the end of the, um, the experience of shooting it. And so there were, there were, we had the entire uh, log of all the episodes under our belts, Beanie and, and I and, and me, and, and it, it, it made it so fraught and so full and um, just a kind of extraordinary, uh, both difficult and exhilarating uh couple of days.
1: I guess that's kind of why you do it, you know, is, is that sort of, it's scary, but it's in the end, exhilarating. Um you know, and you, you, you bring up uh, People versus OJ, and of, of course you played Marsha Clark in that. Um, and now between Marsha Clark and Linda Tripp, you, you're building something of a cottage industry of public figures from the mid to late '90s who were perhaps <laughs> misunderstood or not understood fully enough. Um, obviously, there's there there are exciting opportunities presented when when these roles are, are sort of put on your desk. But what is your trepidation about that? I mean, you know, playing a real person, I would imagine, is very different from from creating a character out of whole cloth. Um, Do you ever have like reservations about doing it before you agree to do it?
0: Well, I do. I mean, I, I didn't want to do Marsha. I didn't want to play that. I didn't know how to do that. I thought it would be uh, the potential for being embarrassed and uh, was, was felt, you know, really huge to me. Um, uh, I felt terrified about it, which I've talked maybe even to you about this before that I tend to gravitate towards things that I'm frightened uh, about being able to pull off. Um, I don't know how else you kind of grow as a, a performer or a human being, um, and hopefully both happen while you're working. That's one of the great gifts of, of getting to do this kind of thing. The Linda thing was was very scary to me because I had never thought about undergoing such a physical transformation. Um, and, and on top of that, um, what I hadn't really considered, and this is really sh- shocking to me in retrospect, but I just hadn't thought about it. Um, and it didn't really occur to me until the first um, television critic at the TCA's kind of made it known that you know they sort of hated me, uh, hated Linda, and I thought, wait what? How, wait what? Uh, I didn't realize, and this will be something I think I will think of if an opportunity like this presents itself to me again. You know, a determination had been made, and and, and to be fair to myself, I had this experience with Marcia, and I had such a a different experience. Um, in terms of people being sort of ready to to embrace Marsha and and sort of correct their, uh, you know, sort of misguided ideas about who she was. Um, But with Linda, because she did this, I think this thing that people refuse to acknowledge they might be capable of because it happened on this national scale, but everyone sort of prides themselves on, I would never do X. I would never cheat. I would never lie. I would never backstab a friend. And it's just sort of like this um, moral certitude um, that people like to build their stories around about themselves. And I hadn't really entertained the idea that, that people would, would not be open to an idea about, about considering that Linda was a, a person of, of worth simply by virtue of the fact that she's a human being on the planet and that every decision that she made should not s- define her solely. Um, it had never occurred to me that people wouldn't maybe be open to that idea. And what has become clear to me since the show has been on, uh, and there's nothing more vulnerable than uh, working on something for so long and then putting it out into the world and and have people just um, talk about it, just Pure, purely talk about it. Even when they say nice things, it's just, it feels incredible. You feel like a carcass on the side of the road being, being picked apart. It's really scary. And in this, in this instance, it was, it was a total shocking uh, revelation to me that, that people just didn't like her and didn't care what, what we were doing with her. Didn't care, and that was something I hadn't considered. And so now, <laughs> I imagine going forward, I might have to really think twice about uh, committing myself so completely to something for so long. And of course, partly the the reason we so the the time was so extended was because of COVID, and and we sort of didn't shoot when we thought we were going to shoot. So I was living with it uh, both physically and mentally for a lot longer than I might have. But um, there there might be some considerations. I I uh, take a little more time assessing before I before I dive in to that uh mid nineties misunderstood lady, whoever <laughs> yeah. she may be, <laughs> yet determined.
1: <laughs> Lorena Bobbitt? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean I think that that's such an interesting point about uh people really having this visceral reaction to her, the evocation of her name, the 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 memory of what she did, you know, because half not half, but like at least some of it has in the sort of uh, the sort of moral understanding of of twenty one twenty one, been vindicated in a way. I mean, she was trying to expose this guy who was, you know, by many people's estimation, preying on women, mm-hmm. and and yes, yeah, she went about it in a really um, underhanded way as it related to her friend. But like, there was a little bit, or at least, or maybe more than a little, where she was kind of right at root. Do you see it that way?
0: I do see it that way. I do yeah. see it that way and I do this is that thing that I think is a really interesting question you know that we kind of all I think kind of skirt around in our days because we we like to imagine that we are not capable of of uh, such hideousness or or um perceived hideousness and and I I just I just don't think it's true. I think all of us are capable of doing really unthinkable things um, when faced with um, extreme circumstances. And, and, and maybe I'm, I'm saying that because I had to find a way to, to get inside this woman's mind and heart and to try to um, stand outside of it and not judge it, but find a way to play it authentically and truthfully without apologizing for her choices and, and to try to lean into all of that as as honestly as I could, without being afraid of how it would be held. Um, but I I do I do think we sort of as a species are are kind of unwilling to look at our capacity for for ugliness. Um, and and I think it's very easy to sit back and go, I would never do X, and I would never do Y. And I just don't I don't. I don't know. I don't look at my own behavior or the behavior of others through that lens, really. Um, but maybe it's because I've been lucky enough to, to play a couple of complicated ladies who, you know, uh, I don't know. But I, I do think it's an interesting conversation because uh, I think so much of life lives in the gray. And I think we are all searching for so much clarity to sort of stave off this, you know, ultimate fear of dying, um, not to go to some <laughs> super dark place. Yeah. But but I think this need for, you know, certainty is is all wrapped up in in that that bigger existential thought uh, that just makes us want to cross our arms and go, well, I would never. And so that person is just worthless and it's it's not interesting to me to, she's just a terrible person. And, and I just, I just disagree so profoundly. Um,
1: that, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would, most people who would say they've never traded on a friend, uh, traded a friend's juicy secret for some sort of social clout is probably not telling the exactly. truth. They didn't secretly record them and then right. make them. I mean, you know, I do
0: get, I'm not trying to excuse, um, you know, I do think what she did will forever be
1: sort of confounding. I, I. I I, but there is something deeply human in there too. There's you know, something deeply
0: that, human in there. And I yeah. think the reason that people respond to her so negatively is they just don't want to consider uh, themselves capable of anything like that. And so it's just right. so much easier to just discard her. And And I think that is, um, I'm just not interested in that, you know?
1: Well, this is sort of a woo-woo question, <laughs> but, and I'm, I'm sure that this process has been made more difficult by uh, doing press about the show uh, after having wrapped filming, but uh, you know, you dwelled in Linda's mind for two years. Has she left you? Have you made peace with her? Like, like, where are you in, in that kind of journey of embodying this person?
0: So interesting. Um, there's so many things I could say to you about
1: that. I...
0: Um, but I don't know how to do it without being honest about other things, and I always get in trouble for saying too much, but I... <laughs> Uh, trouble with myself meaning. Cause I'm like, why did I give that away, uh, for people to pick apart? But, you know, um, the critical response to my performance, um, has been kind of all over the map and some people loving it and some people really hating it and some people finding it, you know, this, this idea of, uh, I shouldn't have played it, it shouldn't have been me. And, um, that kind of punctured, the, uh, real haunting, uh, that I felt, uh, had happened with me and Linda Tripp in terms of, I wouldn't take her ring off and, um, you know, all the things I went around the set and, and took from the house. Um, sorry, all the, uh, props department, I stole all the, I stole a lot of window <laughs> stuff, but, uh, you know, my ashtray, cause it was always sitting on my knee and the pillow that I was always sitting was on my back when I was on the phone with Monica for all those episodes. Um, you know, it was a really meaningful experience for me and an acting experience for me that I'd never had. And that has sort of changed me in terms of the kinds of things I want to do and the challenges I want to, to, um, try to, try to, uh, breach or something. I, but I have felt wounded and injured by, um, feeling so in some ways, so kind of misunderstood or, or determined, um, to be unsuccessful here, um, and again, I—I I don't. I'm not saying I think that's the, um, the wide-reaching feeling, uh, but it—it it really hurt my feelings, and so I was unable. And so then I took her ring off, and I wanted to sort of have an exorcism. I wanted her out of me because it was almost it. This is going to talk about woo-woo. I mean, it felt too personal. It felt like I was Linda. I felt too. It was ultimately this like very wildly meta thing of like, wow, I'm having this experience of feeling. So like Linda, right now. um and and the reason i don't I hesitate to talk about it is that, like as a as an actor, as a performer, like you you put yourself out there, and people, you know, we live in a world where an assessment and a judgment and then a, a printing of said judgment is part of what we do and, and an expectation to be had. But I think I just felt too vulnerable um because because we had just finished it. You know, lots of times you do something you you wait a year before the thing comes out. And by the time it's right. out, you're like, oh God, I'm I'm so down the road doing something else. And I don't really care. I did this thing. I got to play it and I don't give a shit what people think. Um, but this was like, I was like two weeks shy of, of finishing. And then it was like, boom, boom, boom. We hate it. We love it. We hate it. We love it. And I just was like, oh my God, I don't know how to it just felt too personal. So the very long winded, incredibly emotionally uh, (laughs) uh, revealing uh, answer is um, I, it got sort of stolen from me. I allowed it to be stolen from me. The, uh, my, my end story of saying goodbye to Linda, I kind of had a abruptness had an abruptness that, that I regret, but I don't know. I, I obviously, as you can tell, I'm still, um, still sort of in something, uh, about all of it, but maybe I won't be once it's on and there's only one episode left now. So I can, yeah. I can, I can be liberated from my experience. And
1: I, I think in the fullness of time, you know, uh, yeah. it will only gain an appreciation. I mean, yeah. certainly we, uh, on this podcast have admired the work all season, uh, and was just such a thrill to hear your thoughts on it, Sarah. Thank um, so, so I really thank you for your time and, and for all the great work.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for Thank you. And
1: uh, we look forward to talking to you about the next great American yeah. crime, wh- whatever that may be. <laughs> whatever that may be. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, sir. Thank
0: you so much. Bye.
2: So back to Linda of the show, we see her kind of get this box full of papers from the Pentagon. That is not what she needs. And uh, she says, this is chilling, <laughs> like assuming that it is a, a direct uh, act of aggression from her coworkers, And it could have been. It, it does seem plausible that people would have been pretty frustrated with her at this point. Um, but they, she's under investigation because of a detail in that Jane Mayer story about a high school prank. Um, Richard, you read the article. What was the prank?
1: Well, the article doesn't call it a prank. It just says oh. that she was arrested with a bunch of cash and some other valuables, totaling some hundreds of dollars, and was arrested for grand larceny. It does not, Whoa. you know, it doesn't go into the fact that, as, as claimed on the show, that she, you know, that it was like a, a prank gone wrong or whatever. Um, so that's, I'm, one, I'm curious where the, the people, who you know, the, the showmakers uh, got that detail. You know, maybe there was other stuff that Tripp has said about that moment, but the article presents it as just like, well, she was arrested, and then she lied about it on her... DoD application.
2: Yeah, I mean, that it does seem a little unfair that that's what they're kind of pinning her for. But also, Linda was such a rule follower, like the idea that she would have lied on an application about something like that is kind of remarkable. I
1: will say that one thing that that mayor does strenuously uh, reiterate in the throughout the article is that at the White House, at the Pentagon, exemplary performance reports that she was a hard worker. Mm. She was well liked in terms of like people. She was fun. You know, Mm, um, and mm -hmm. it was cheery. And that's kind of why at least the article uh, makes a supposition that, like, that's why she was one of the rare people. I mean, it really almost never happens who um, stayed on into a new administration.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, So then when it comes time for her to go to the grand jury. So by the time in the the episode, we've seen the Monica um, testimony, which we'll talk about in in a minute. And we see Linda in the courtroom while Monica is in a room with the star team, kind of as part of her uh, um, her immunity deal, having to listen to the tapes that Linda made while um, Mike Emmick, Colin Hanks' character, and another guy are in the courtroom reading them out loud, um, which I think is a smart way to frame the story around Monica. Like, I don't think Linda's grand jury testimony is the most important part of the story here. Um, and listening to... Monica crying on the tape, which is not what the jury's hearing, but what we're hearing. And it really gets you in the headspace of the jurors, where, as it's shown on the show, from the first minute, are just like, why did you do all of this? Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about how that was depicted?
1: No, I thought it was sharp. And again, I, I was like, Oh wait, are we just going to hear these details we've heard already again? Yeah. But instead, they did this kind of artful thing of juxtaposing the raw audio with the sort of more you know sanitized formal procedure you know kind of thing of the grand jury um but all sort of pointing toward that ultimate thing of like did you think about her at all when you were doing this yeah and then you when you hear like monica sobbing on the phone you're like oh jesus like you know regardless of what linda's you know broader convictions were her higher-minded sort of ideals that she was trying to protect um this was a very vulnerable person who she made all the more vulnerable. And I think that that does register for her in these scenes.
2: Yeah, they play a clip of them talking about Monica buying Clinton ties. And having read through the transcripts of the Monica testimony in particular, they spent a ton of time talking about the ties. And I couldn't fully figure out why. There's a little bit of a mention of it in the Monica stuff, which we'll mention later. Um, and I just wanted to flag the moment where they're like, well, Linda, you were telling her, like, she said she bought him a tie and you said, yay. And Or you said, oh, good. And Linda says, that was more of a pro-Marshals statement.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Are you
2: pro-Marshals as well? That's
1: great, yeah. I'm I'm pro-Marshals especially because uh, there's one, I don't know if it's still open, but right near the Condé offices at One World Trade Center in downtown Manhattan. And it's been a very good resource for when I'm like, Oh, I have to go to a thing and I forgot to dress properly and then I run down to
2: Marshall's. <laughs> uh, this episode not sponsored by Marshall. So if they're we if they're open to take it. their money. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Um I did in in what I could find from Linda's testimony, I did find mention Marshall's where she is talking about the ties. She said one in particular she found at either Marshall's or T J Max because you can go and buy some nice name brand clothes at TJ Maxx or Marshall's for a lot less than you can at her favorite store, which sounds like ad copy. Yeah. So I guess Linda was sponsored by Marshalls for for this uh, for some reason. Um, Okay, so the jurors really want nothing to do with Linda, even when she brings up Vince Foster talking about how she was frightened by it. uh, They are um, they're not having it, which from what we've seen in, in the Monica stuff earlier, kind of tracks with what we know of them. And Linda, she does seem kind of discouraged by how this is all gone. She seems aware that she hasn't come off that well. But then she goes to make that speech on the courthouse steps which you guys talked about in the interview as well um and i think you know the quote from it that stayed famous is like the i'm like you i'm just like an average american who found herself in a situation not of her own making um and then it continues with with a good bit more of the linda grandiosity uh how do you how do you feel about that speech given the linda that we know from the show
1: i mean it's expertly delivered by paulson um and i i think it's like the show has been such an interesting kind of ever shifting portrait of linda tripp and i think this episode does offer her some redemption where you do hear her talk whether it's a plan statement or just what she's saying to the grand jury about the deeper things motivating this maybe it's she's not mentioning the stuff that jane mayer gets at in her new yorker piece or whatever but like there is some true earnest political or 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 even more ethical conviction here you know and i think that that it is yes self-aggrandizing in her her prepared statement but like I also cure her, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't, still don't support, you know, wiretapping your friends and in the process helping <laughs> bold, to dest- yeah, destroy their lives. Um, I, sh- I am recording this, by the way, Katie. Um, <laughs> but if you take that away, which is a big ask, you know, um, she was trying to put, uh, you know, an abusive man in check in some way. And like, Uh I kind of I mean, that's honorable in its own way, whether or not her comparison points were like, well, the Reagan White House was better. The Bush White House was better. Like, okay, but I don't know. I just I guess I can't really say it more articulately than like I hear her in this episode. Like, I get it uh, in a way that I think um, the show has been building up to.
2: Um, So that's the last we see of Linda. And let's jump back to Monica, who has her, she has her test or her grand jury testimony. It's shown first on the show. It happened after in real life. Um, And so she walks in the courtroom and she sees Mike Emick again, Colin Hanks uh, again. And he's with a woman who this is uh, Karen Immigate. And she's sitting with him and basically saying, like, yeah, I'm excited. The star hasn't given me anything to do except secretarial work. Um. And he is Emmick is very frank. Like it's just we just need a woman here. She's she's just so the token woman, and and seems okay with it. And then you see her stand up a minute later, and she reveals that she's pregnant, which has to help, I guess. And then she kind of um, immediately jumps into these really horrible, graphic questions. Um, what what do you think of Karen Emerget as we meet her here?
1: Well, I should um, make note of the fact that Karen is played by my old friend Lindsay Broad. Um oh, really? Yeah, so it's she texted me she's been listening to the podcast and she said, I'm in oh, episodes wow. nine and ten. So uh hi Lindsay. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, yeah, and she's very good. Um people should go seek out her other work. Um but uh yeah, so gets an interesting figure, uh, who was um appointed to a district judgeship by Trump, actually. Yes, um, she was. And it took a couple things. It seems like her political affiliations have been very shifting over the years depending on who she's working for Um, yeah
2: so kind of a kind of a bipartisan figure i guess if you want to uh, put it charitably yeah
1: yeah maybe maybe it's a sort of you know uh, um non-biased judgy kind of political independence but um but anyway i you know i think there's a a, um she karen figures interestingly in this episode in that like they're making a woman do the dirty work hillary's about to do that too she's already kind of done it like like you see how much the women in this show are sort of asked to um expose their private lives to compromise their ethics to do all this stuff and then the men come in at the last minute and sort of collect it all and then take it forward in public you know like it 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 mm-hmm. i think Karen's role in this episode is telling is part of a bigger story that the whole show is telling um which yeah. I think is interesting
2: Yeah I mean and in these courtroom scenes she's pretty unsympathetic she's kind of a more of a functionary character of making all of this terrible punishment for monica happen and then later on there's a scene between the two of them where i think you see her more as a person trapped in that system that you're talking about that that's really good
1: yeah there's almost a kind of i mean not that that um monica is this figure but i just had like a some whiff of like um rashida jones in the social network huh. as the kind uh-huh. of like kinder person on the yeah. opposite side of the table you know um, and the line at the end when Karen says, "I hope for your sake this is goodbye," you know, so it's like yeah. I'm human, like I'm pregnant, like you know, we're both women, like I'm sorry about all this, um, yeah. While also kind of doing the steely-eyed, like, "Yeah, I'll do yeah. the dirty you're not, work."
2: You're not an, <laughs> you're not an asshole, Monica. You're just tro- trying so hard to be one, right, or whatever right, the exactly. Rashida yeah. Jones line is. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So I went to the transcript for a lot of this, and you know, I haven't been able to put one to one all of the scenes, but. She really does ask if she's allowed to know people's names and she's told no. And then after that, her like her cup is leaking and she apologizes for the cup leaking and they have to go get her another one. Um, And then in the part where, you know, they're handed this like exhibit, this sheaf of papers about every single sexual encounter between her and Bill Clinton. And it's really painful to see in the show. It's even more painful to read in the transcript. Like there's a point where the the. dossier or whatever you'd call it says brief direct genital contact could you just elaborate on that a bit and monica says oh my gosh this is so embarrassing and the juror says you could just close your eyes and talk we won't look at you and monica says can i hide under the table and i feel oh my god but the way that they show that on the show is so you see how the jury is immediately gets on board with her and they um they're funny and monica's funny and they're like you know thinking about how her mother maybe should have stepped in and monica's just like well you know i was in love um there's one actual jury quote about asking her about having an affair with another married man the teacher we saw before and i don't think this is on the show they say you're young you're vibrant i can't figure out why you keep going after things that aren't free that aren't that aren't obtainable it's like, it's like therapy for Monica in front of this grand jury.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in both her testimony and Linda's, it becomes less about the sort of letters of the law and more about like, what what were you thinking? You know, like, like it yeah. becomes more of a conversation. Um, and I, I don't know, do we know anything concrete about what the makeup of that grand jury actually was?
2: I don't. I So I did email Sarah Burgess, who's the show's creator, because I was curious about something where... In the um, in the real transcripts, they ask her about a cigar um, and as shown on the show. And in that that one on one deposition she did with the woman that didn't happen until afterwards. But she was kind of explaining to me how there had been leaks about it. And also that the grand jury is allowed to read media coverage of the case. Like, you know, you're on a trial, you're sequestered like a criminal trial. But I don't know why. But on a grand jury, they were allowed to kind of know what was going on in the news, which I found found fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is fascinating. I mean, I, I think, well, a couple of things. One, I can't believe I forgot about the whole cigar thing. And I, and it's interesting. That,
2: <gasps> I wrote the same yeah. thing in my notes. Oh like God. it's interesting that
1: the, the show like held that I think is one last, like, Oh my God. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and like thinking about that, getting out into the public. Um, but, but with the grand jury, I mean, you know, it's, it's mostly women, older women, well, women older than mm-hmm. Monica and a lot of, a black, lot of women. black women. Cause I guess it's DC or for that was my guess yeah. too. Yeah. Um, and, or just, I don't know, but, but yeah, I think there's a really interesting, whether or not that was literally like, um, ha, what the tone of that interaction was, I think there's something very interesting in Greek chorus-esque about this grand jury and the way mm-hmm. that they represent a public who is not c- condemning her, but is just, just kind of forcefully wants to know why and what happened. Yeah. and. And then you think when you're watching Monica testify, you're like, wow, they're really grilling her. And then Linda does. And you're like, oh, no, no, they they were concerned <laughs> about Monica in a very yeah. like stern, motherly way. They are yeah. angry at Linda. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the I really recommend reading these transcripts, honestly, if you've watched the episode and you're interested, because it's so casual. Like, they're just chatting with her in all these different ways. Like, so much of what you see really happens. Like, she asks if they can just call her Monica. And she says, I'm just 25. And- they say, but you'll always be Miss Lewinsky, whether you're twenty-five or twenty-eight, and she says, Not if I get married. Um, and they ask her if she still loves the president, and she kind of goes through like a whole story about how he's not who she thought he was. And she's she's just really winning. Um, and I it's funny to me that she has gone that the real Monica Lewinsky has gone through the period of reclaiming herself in the public eye when we had this then to see kind of um how likable she is and, and was at the time. Okay, so I won't read like the entire transcripts, because again, they're all in there. You can read them. Um, she does talk in the episode about how wh- whether she still loves him and how he's not who I thought I was. And it's so this is happening August 20th. The speech from the previous episode where he gets on TV and kind of admits to wrongdoing happened three days before that. So you you can see how those wounds are kind of fresh that he doesn't like mention her at all. Um which is also so disappointing because it's like Monica, he does he's not gonna mention you while he's apologizing to the nation. Like this isn't about you. You see her being kind of stuck on it. Um and then the thing that I was most um intrigued to see that really happened is when she asks him to leave the room. She, you know, looks at Colin Hanks' character and like can't talk about the day of the FBI raid without with him in there and just kind of boldly says, like, Can can you leave, please? Um, it was such a, a such a steely spine moment for Monica that we haven't seen too much of from her, and and it really happened. I was glad to see it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and a reminder to him, like, you, I'm I'm not with you, you know, like like I'm mad at you too, you know, like I I think it's important that he kind of had that moment of like, oh right, like I did terrible things.
2: Yeah. Um, so you get to the end of it, and um, I'm just going to read from the transcript of what she said. I think because of the public nature of how this investigation has been and what the charges aired, that I would just like to say that no one ever asked me to lie, and I was never promised a job for my silence, and that I'm sorry, and I'm really sorry for everything that's happened. And then in parentheses, it says, the witness begins to cry, and I hate Linda Tripp. That is what she said, yeah. <laughs> exactly as on the
1: show. And then the, one of the grand jury people is like kind of hoots in a scent, you know, like...
2: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what they what they said in the transcript is like, we've all fallen short. We sin every day. I don't care whether it's murder, whether it's affairs or whatever. And we get over that. You ask for forgiveness and you go on. Uh, so to let you know from here, you have my forgiveness because we all fall short. That's really moving yeah. that, that she got that in that really stiff court context. And then they also said, right now you feel a lot of hate for Linda Tripp, but you need to move on and leave her where she is because whatever goes around comes around. And like three more jurors are like, oh yeah, it's going to come around. Like they are they're already. (laughs) i
1: mean it's really interesting it's such an an interesting reflection of of kind of how the public's uh attitude was you know like pruriently interested wanting to get pride the details out of monica Lewinsky. but at the in the end in some senses kind of sympathetic and caring and linda was just persona non Yeah, you know
2: yeah and ready to like let monica go and and live her life um so then yeah so the almost the last scene of the episode. Um, the last time we see Monica in the episode is when she goes back into the star office to um, to give more details about their sexual encounters. Of course, it's Brett Kavanaugh who comes in and says they need it. Um, whether or not that happened in real life, that's how the show is depicting it. Um, and yeah, as we've said, um, you see this really intense, sad scene between these two women where she's being asked to just give, like, brutal details. Details that, like, I would be impressed for anyone to remember, but, you know, apparently Monica had a really good memory. Um, and the cigar part. And it's 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 heartbreaking. And Beanie Feldstein, again, just plays that, that kind of internal crumbling so well.
1: Yeah. And the way that they just kind of walk so softly and quietly up to the cigar thing, which, again, mm-hmm. was like this huge detail that people talked about so much at the time. Huge. You know, yeah. and that the show didn't get to that till now. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's something kind of crass about that that they would set it up as this kind of like grim punchline but like it it also just was like oh right there was still more even if you think everything's already out nope there was something else big yeah and you know
2: and i imagine we're gonna see something along those lines in terms of the public humiliation like the star report isn't out yet that's going to be in the final episode and for monica's life like she went through she went through the absolute worst of it in 1998 but there's still more things like you know the the legacy of that lives on. There's still like more punches in the gut that come after this. So maybe that's a preview of um of how they're going to show what happens next. Yeah. Well, speaking of what happens next, the finale is next week. Mm. We're, uh, I mean, I as I said, I think in the beginning, I want to like loop back to Ann Coulter, loop back to Michael Sichoff. I want to see how everyone else turns out. Uh, anything else that you're hoping for?
1: You know, just a little bit of closure, but also, um nothing i mean obviously they can't tidy everything up but like i don't know i i think i think that the show has done a good job thus far of nailing the kind of ambiguity if you can nail ambiguity but like you know like getting getting right that sense of like no one's a true villain no one's a true hero it's all just kind of morass of of just human impulse and whatever and uh i i, I hope that the show like knows that they can end on that sort of note of like, well, we don't really know, you know? Um,
2: Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. I
1: I just hope they're, I think the conclusions have already been drawn and I don't think they need to, to like button everything up too neatly.
2: Yeah. I hope we jump forward a little bit for Monica, at least like I would love to see her TED talk or something about like the period that she has spent in the last decade, a little bit less than a decade of of reclaiming the story for herself. Cause I think you need to like, see her kind of go off and recover and then emerge back as her own self. Cause she's, she's the person that, you're rooting for the most. But also, I want to see Linda's Christmas store. I kind of want Linda to get a little bit of her happy ending too, which it seems like she really got uh, despite all of this. Yeah. We'll be back next week to wrap up impeachment. Um, Richard, people can hear you and Sonia on the, uh, uh, the Succession episodes is still watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, where else can people find you?
1: Well, I tour every country in the world except for America with my Russian accordion group. Uh, So just look up for dates on our website Uh, when I'm not doing that. Tweeting from Rylos and writing reviews and stuff at VF.com. Katie, until the last episode, where can people find you?
2: Uh, Well, I'll be at TJ Maxx and Marshall's. I don't know if you know that you can get really great clothes there for a lot less than at some of your favorite stores. Um, Use offer code impeachment. (laughs) (laughs) But you can only buy ties that Bill Clinton would have worn in 1998. Um, You can find me tweeting at uh, Katie Rich and on uh, VF.com as well. And as always, this episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez.